Have your Bibles turn to Titus chapter 3. Uh, we, are, we are suspending briefly. Uh, Lord willing, we'll return to our study of 2 Samuel next week, but uh, just suspending briefly. Uh, oftentimes, whenever we have baptismal service, I like to go back to the, to the basics of things, and we want to do that here this morning. So Titus chapter 3, and we want to look at verses 3 to 8. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. For Second Thessalonians, for Second Timothy, Titus. Uh, chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing, regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And Father, we ask as always that you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our hands and our feet and our mouths, that we would go in obedience to Christ. May you do this good work. Lord, we are looking at simple message of the gospel. Uh, may we not uh, take it for granted, but, but remind ourselves of its truth every day of our lives. May I decrease so that you can increase. In your son, we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. I heard a comedian uh, a few years ago uh, talk about marriage, particularly uh, the struggle he and his wife have in communication. He, he complains that it's as if the, the two are talking two different languages. And he says, I, I really, in communication, want, want the answer to the one question with my wife. And that question is, what do you want? Just plain and simple, what do you want? He gives the example, a simple example that I'm sure happens every day, and that is a pair of, of a single sock lying in the bedroom floor. He will walk in and she will be staring at the sock and she will then stare at him and stare back at the sock, stare back at him. And what the husband is waiting for is instructions. What do you want? Now, we all know what she wants. She wants the single sock that is on the floor no longer to be in the floor, but to be put in the laundry baskets so they can be washed. And the, the, the missing piece of that sock puzzle might be found and everyone goes about their, their merry lives. Now, does she at any point say, honey, if you would be so kind as to bend over, pick up that sock, place it over at this conveniently located laundry basket where we put our dirty clothes so that at a more convenient time, we may wash the clothes in that basket. At that point, they would be, as the comedian said, communicated at the highest level possible. Or you can simplify it in three words. Pick this up. You can choose either option. I'm sure there are options in between, but, but that would be communicated in a way that he, as her beloved husband, could understand. But that's not what it is she does. She looks at that sock. She looks at him. Looks back at that sock, looks back at him, and asks, are those yours? 
Within that question is supposed to be all the instructions we just discussed, but none of those instructions are given. He, of course, thinks, well, I have two little girls and a little boy. And I assume since those are male socks, they are not my little girls. And I'm assuming since the boy is but one or two, those aren't his either. And if those are not my socks, I've got a few questions I need to ask you, right? Right? And she says, what do you want? What do you want? That's the simple question that he, he wants. And, and, and that's really the simple question we, we want in faith, isn't it? If we're not careful, we can turn Christianity into something more complicated than what it really is. Perhaps in a pursuit of, of intellectualism or spiritual depth or whatever it might be, we, it's easy for us to think that we can graduate from the simple instruction of Scripture. And that simple instruction of Scripture is that we may all believe that Christ, risen from the dead, might be saved. And so notice where Paul begins in verse 3. He, he begins with the problem, right? He begins with the problem. You see it there in verse 3. Uh, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Uh, several years ago, there was a Catholic New York senator uh, doing uh, whatever it is that New York senators do, and uh, there was an uh, Amish father attending. And the Amish father pulled the, the Catholic senator aside and to, to, to really just to complain, not about politics, but, but to unload on him the struggles he's having as a father. He says, Senator, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I've lost my daughter. Lost your daughter? Like, what are you talking about? What has happened to your daughter? She, he said, I think she is converting to Roman Catholicism. And here was this Catholic senator just absolutely amazed at what it is he was hearing from the testimony of his father. I mean, he, he thought, I know the Catholic Church is global and good. I didn't know they were this good. Reaching even the, uh, an Amish family in northern New York State. But before he, he continued the conversation, he, he thought, you know, I'd really like to know how it is he, he thinks that this, 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 this daughter of his is becoming Catholic. And so he asked her, what makes you think she's converting to the mother church? And he says, well, every time she goes off to hang out with her friends, she comes back and all she talks about is Madonna. <laughs> the Gen Zers are like, I don't get that at all. But that is a funny story. It's a true story. That is a funny story. I don't care who you are. And of course, the New York senator to himself said, I think the problem is a lot worse than what you realize. It's not the Catholic Madonna that's the problem. It is something perhaps far worse. One of the things to notice about the Bible is that it consistently starts when laying out our hope of salvation in the same place. It starts with God's holiness and our sinfulness, our brokenness. John Stott rightly shows that uh, really starting in verse 4, but we can, we can bring verse 3 into this as part of the same thought. Verse 4 to 7 is a single long sentence which may be part of an early Christian creed. And some scholars begin that creed there at verse 3 because it lays the foundation for why verses 4 to 
7 is there in the first place. And notice what Paul says about me and you, all of us, not the person sitting next to you or that person that, that, that uh, lives three houses up the street. He, he says that we are foolish, disobedient, we are deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We spend our life in malice and envy. We are hateful and we hate one another. Now, one of the great debates of our time right now regards the source of our brokenness. All of us agree our lives aren't perfect and we have all of our own struggles and we, we agree on all of that. The question is, what, what's the source of it? And we may disagree as to the depth of it, particularly when we look in the mirror, but we all agree that we are broken people. And we've come down to two options. Perhaps the most prominent option we are seeing in our society today is to say that people are broken because society is broken. A broken system produces broken people. If you fix the system, you'll fix the people. And this is why we, we, we get so energized every four years in an election. We get so energized every time that uh, new legislation is debated or a, a new cause is brought up or, or whatever it might be. We believe that if we just fix the system, we'll fix the people in the system. That's what secular society has argued. But we can look just as easily at the self-help movement. We suggest that broken people produce broken systems. And the answer is, of course, self-esteem. If we could just believe in ourselves and pursue personal happiness, then the world would be a better place. The Bible shows that these are actually two extremes that left to themselves lead to greater brokenness. The Bible suggests that what's wrong with the world is me. And what's wrong with the world is the world of which I am part of. There's a broken system because there's broken people. There's broken people because there's a broken system. It's a vicious cycle of unrepentance. If we don't deal with sin, we will continue down this, this road of brokenness and shame and guilt. Again, notice this list that Paul provides. Foolishness is never isolated, but it describes the self. Disobedience implies a, a relationship. Uh, slaves, he says, to various passions and pleasures, Those, that slavery ruins lives, it ruins relationships, it ruins communities. Addiction does not just affect, affect the addicted. Idolatry feeds anxiety, bitterness, hurt, fear. And such slavery cannot be redeemed by mere self-esteem or societal awareness. These matters require a savior. In fact, those words malice and envy is interesting. It's not an accident he put those together. Again, John Stott notices that malice and envy are two very ugly twins. Malice is wishing people evil, while envy is resenting and coveting their good. Both disrupt human relationships. Notice here, the poison of the soul poisons relationships. The problem isn't just out there or only in here. The problem is, is all of it. I am broken. I am a sinner. And I, I am not just a victim. I am I, I'm one who has, a, has victimized other people, hated by others and hating one another. It's very clear there. Look around. I mean, one of the things we, we just finally need to admit as Americans is we hate each other. And we hate each other. This is why we are so di divided. We would rather see the other side suffer and lose than to see society be better off. As society progresses, we seem to find new reasons to hate our neighbor. Any study of history reveals 
and shows the unbelievable depth at which man will go to ruin, destroy, and tear down their neighbor. You, you can pick any era of history, pick any day in history, and you will find an example appalling of just the things that humans will do to other humans is quite shameful. And this is our lives every single day. And Paul is very clear. This is who we are as individuals. This is who we are as a society. One of the things I, I, I discovered recently about the, the artist Bob Ross, noted, of course, for his, his shows of the art of paintings, that's what it was called on PBS for all those years. Uh, you can still watch him and you know, paint those little trees. Um, is, is his show, if you go back and watch it, there was a period there where his paintings were very dark. And in the middle of his shows, he, he says, you know, I hadn't noticed it until now. And here lately, following the death of my wife, all my paintings look really dark. It looks really dark. He says, you know, you can paint dark and not even know it. After all, he says, art reflects the heart. So too, a broken society reflects a broken people. And broken people make up of a broken soul. What is the solution, of course? That, that's, that's the question that we have. Can policy cure the human heart? Can self-esteem cure human brokenness? Can any guru you may find on the internet bring peace to our troubled and weary souls? You see, what we've done as a society is we think, look, if the problem is the system, what we need to do is find another system. Verily I say to thee, guess what you're going to find out in that system? If the problem is this guy, what we need is another guy. Verily I say unto thee, you're still going to have a lot of problems. Because the problem is sin and a fallen world that corrupts everything from the human heart to the human system. The problem, if it is internal, as it clearly is, cannot be resolved with, with deep, diving deeper inside the self. You're not going to find salvation there. The solution then must be external. And it must be from one who is sympathetic to the problem, yet is outside of it at the same time. So we move from the problem of verse 3 to the solution of verses 4 to 7. Remember that verses 4 to 7 is a single verse in the Greek, or single sentence in the Greek. Notice Paul begins with God's goodness. But when, that word but is very important, we go from the bad news to the good news. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Notice that God's goodness is contrasted there clearly with our worst. Despite our brokenness, God enters our story. No other religion can actually claim this. Religion tells you that what you need to do is pick yourself up, climb to the heavens. You can do this through good works. You can do it through ritual, self-belief, self-esteem, social work, whatever it might be. But only in Christianity is the depth of our sin taken seriously. And in the midst of that sin... God comes down to rescue us. Look, if, if you're drowning, what you don't need is good advice. Ever tell you the time I almost drowned my wife? That was, 
just, just you're awake now, aren't you? Oh, please tell me how you almost committed murder. Well, we were dating, so it's it's okay. We were dating. I didn't know better than I was a teenager, and and so so I thought while we're swimming, it'd be a lot of fun if I just dunked her. I was practicing baptism. It was a spiritual experience. So we go out to the deep end, and I think, okay, here we go. And and my wife told me she can swim, just not very good. She's also told me she likes scrambled eggs. But after 21 years, I've never seen her eat a scrambled egg. Every time I'm scrambling eggs, what I get is, what is that? Ugh, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, I thought you liked scrambled eggs. I do like scrambled eggs. Why don't you eat scrambled eggs? I don't like scrambled eggs. Remember that part about communication and marriage, right? This is one of those. I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll just dunk her a little bit. And, and she's just going. I, I thought, try paddling. That's good advice, right? Try, try swimming. That's, that's really good advice. The air is above the water, right? That's really good advice. That's not what she needs. It's the one time in my life I ever rescued anyone and I felt like a man. You know what I mean? Like that's a feeling every man needs to have. What she didn't need was good advice. What we need whenever we drown is rescue. And this is what Paul offers us here. Notice there at verse 5, that, that, verse 4, that it's the goodness and loving kindness of God. Our Savior appears. He saves us. This is God's grace, not because of works we've done in righteousness. Why? Because he gave us what our works and righteousness looks like in verse 3. Brokenness and in disrepair, slavery and, and hatred and malice and envy. So, so if, if surely those things won't save us, and if they can't save us, why do we rely on them to, to save us? No, no, we're, we're not saved by works done in our self-righteousness. We are saved according, he says in verse 5, to his own mercy. You see there, that is a message that says, not that you deserve salvation, but are given it for no other reason than because that's the sort of God that he is. God's unmerited kindness and unconditional love results in his exclusive work of salvation. That is what we mean by grace. John Stott is right when he says the whole sentence hinges upon the main verb, he saved us. It is perhaps the fullest statement of salvation in the New Testament. I think he's right. If you want to boil the New Testament into a half a verse, not even half a verse, a fourth of a verse, it is right there beginning of verse three. He saved us. Amen. Notice how he saved us, verse four. His motivation was God's kindness and love. The basis is, verse 5, on his mercy and not on our good deeds. The power was our regeneration from the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Notice there, he, he, he describes regeneration and renewal, a, a washing. This is a cleansing here. The work is, in verse 6, that Jesus Christ died in our place. The means there, beginning verse 7, is justification again by his grace. And then the result there at the end of verse 7 is eternal life as joint heirs with Jesus. So read it again as a whole, starting in verse 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't that very clear? Salvation comes exclusively by a Savior. If only we would embrace his salvation. But you notice where Paul leaves us. He doesn't stop there. It's the end of the sentence, but it's not the end of the thought. 
We've seen the problem, we, we, we've seen the solution, but what is the outcome here? The outcome is laid out there in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You know, it is here that we, we make a common mistake. We can understand the depth of our sin eventually. We can see the work of Christ and our need for him. But the question then becomes, what now? And you, we always end up in these one of two extremes, don't we? One extreme says, well, um, um, it's, it's, there's salvation and then there's, 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 there's uh, the Christian life. And they're two very different things. So what we end up doing is we promote people who come to Jesus but don't follow Jesus. The other end will, will be those who say, well, well, following Jesus is essentially the same as coming to Jesus. And so we, we merge these two thoughts. And what happens is our coming to Jesus is determined by our good works, which Paul just said was never the source of our salvation. But, but notice what it is that he is actually arguing here. He's not saying that good works uh, 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 bring salvation. He's saying rather it is the outworking of salvation. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. The way I love my wife is she every morning gives me a list of things I have to do. Let's call them 10 commandments. Okay, just I pull a term off the top of my head. And I look at them and I say, well, if I get seven of them in today, then we're probably okay. Right? I shoot for seven, usually settle for two or three, but I shoot for seven, you know, because I'm... I'm that good of a husband, right? And, and so, so that, that, that's, that's what we do. Now, let's say I, I, I shoot for that seven. I get that seven every day. And, I, and, and at the end of the day, I say, see, aren't I a good husband? That may work whenever she needs work done around the house. But come anniversary time. Come when affection is needed more than duty. Oh, rule keeping isn't going to demonstrate my love. It's going to demonstrate my ability to follow the rules. You see, love isn't defined by duty. It's often defined by delight. In fact, it's a little bit of both, isn't it? I do because I delight. I delight, therefore I do. You see, love isn't a list of rules. She doesn't have to say, oh, hey, by the way, honey, uh, you do know we got married in July, right? I may forget the date, but I remember it was a hot day. I do remember that part, right? Look, love is itself motivation for service. So it is with gospel obedience. If you come to the faith and think, what I need to do, is just give me the rules so I can follow them, and everyone can think I'm a spiritual person, you've already failed. But if your motivation is the glory of God seen in someone as broken as me, being repaired by the Spirit of God, that's the key to the Christian journey. This, he says, is a trustworthy statement. That language is usually the, the beginning of a thought. Here, it is the explanation of the thoughts. You've got the gospel there. The problem is that I am broken and in need of repair. But what I need is not good advice. What I need is rescue. What I need is rescue. And Christ comes and becomes one of us, dies in our place and for our sins. And by his mercy, we are redeemed. What now? The answer is the trustworthy statement. Devote yourselves to good works, not for salvation, but because of love. 
What follows faith is fellowship and freedom. You can't have faith without fellowship. And true faith produces freedom. Loving Jesus is demonstrated in that we love our neighbor as much as God in Christ has demonstrated his love for us by dying for us. What a better world it would be if we loved our neighbor like Christ has shown his love towards us. Make for a boring election season, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be nice? We wouldn't fight over such trivial things that we do on a daily basis. Wouldn't that be nice? Maybe traffic would flow at 4.30 in downtown Frankfurt during the weekday. But notice he, he says not just to devote yourselves to the good works, that you follow Jesus, you come to Jesus, you follow him. Notice he says this right here is excellent and profitable for who? For people. The same people who are broken. The same people who walk around with shame and guilt and fear and anxiety and bitterness and envy, and foolishness and slavery to sin. The same people. How will they see a good God if there isn't a good Christian around who's been redeemed by this good God? How will they know what godly love is unless Christians live by God's love? This is excellent and profitable for people. And that's a fitting conclusion. Faith is profitable in ways that goes beyond wealth. If you want a good life, come to the cross and lay your life down. There's freedom there. There's hope there. There is peace there. There is joy there. There is love there. You see, you won't find it in the system. You won't find it by diving deeper into the human heart. You'll find it by coming to the cross. My favorite scenes in all all of human literature comes in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I've shared it with you a thousand times. You can hear it one more time. Bunyan is, is describes its allegory of Pilgrim's Progress about a man named Christian. He, he, he's trying to come to Celestial City, but he must first come to the cross. Bunyan has on his back what, uh, or Christian has on his back what Bunyan calls a burden. I think it's psychological guilt, but at the very least he has this burden on him and it's weighing him down with each step he takes. And no one, no matter how hard they try, can get that burden off of his back. It isn't until he comes to the cross and there he sees Christ bleeding in his, in his place and dying for his sins that that burden rolls off his back. And the way Bunyan describes it, it rolls down the heel inside of a tomb and he says, there it stayed for the rest of his days. See, Bunyan understand that we are all broken and we carry on our shoulders a burden that is too heavy for us to, ca- to carry. The answer to that is to look to the cross. There we will find freedom. There we will find fellowship. It will only come by faith. See, I guess we could say at the end of the day is that it's not wealth that I need. It's Jesus, it's Savior. It's not success that I need. It's a Savior. It's not happiness I need. It's a Savior. It's not affordable health care that I need. It's a Savior. It's not an Ivy League education for my children that I need. It's a savior. It's not relational bliss that I need. It's a savior. And I suspect there are some here who have never come to the savior. Will you reckon with your brokenness, reckon with your guilt, reckon with your shame, and find in Christ a savior who will redeem your soul? And I suspect there are some here who thought in coming to Jesus was simply fire insurance. I just don't want to go to hell. And I can just go on living my life the way I want to. 
You thought you came to Jesus, but you forgot the part about following Jesus. Will you come too? Will you come too? Rededicate your life for a Savior who loved you enough to come and to rescue you. Let's pray.